This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. I love Jasper Jones. I saw the film, I went to the theatre and, of course, read the book. It's been a long wait for Craig Sylvie's next book, but Honeybee is out now. Welcome, Craig. Thank you so much, Jan. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you. Jasper Jones was growing up in a mining town in Western Australia. Sam Watson is of a similar age, but much unhappier. Where is he when the book starts? Right, well, yeah, Honeybee is about uh, Sam Watson, who was a young trans teenager. And we meet Sam uh, for the first time late one night when she steps onto a quiet traffic bridge and climbs over the rail and looks down at the road below and has the intention of ending her life. Yeah, so at so the other end of the bridge, we, uh, uh, she sees an old man. His name is Vic, and uh, he's smoking his last cigarette, and he's there to end his own struggle, and Honeybee is about the two of them meeting and the way that their fates are forever changed. Uh, and it's about the relationship that blooms between the two of them and the efforts that they make to repair each other. So Sam is bruised, battered and suicidal. Sam's left his mother. She was a single mum at the age of 19. Vic, on the other hand, is older and wiser. Why, why is Vic suicidal? Vic is at the end of his tether, really, in, in many respects. Vic's struggling. After the death of his wife, Edie, many years before, Vic's world collapsed. A large part of it, Vic died as well. Well, really, the and only reason he stayed alive this long is because he had to look after Edie's dog. <laughs> that, but you're right. The, the dog passed away, and, and with that, Vic felt his last responsibility was, was over. So Sam comes to stay with Vic and sleeps in what was Vic and Edie's bedroom. Her wardrobe is still full of her clothes. And this is the first time anyone has seen Sam dressed in women's clothes. How does Vic react to this? Well, Vic's reaction is confused by Sam in the, in the initial case because for Vic it's quite confronting to see Edie's clothes again on, a, on somebody's body. And his initial reaction is that Sam might be making a mockery of Edie. And so he loses his temper. However, uh, Vic comes to understand who Sam is and what she's trying to express. And he is so admirably accepting, so lovely uh, that Sam feels an almost immediate comfort with Vic and feels as though uh, in their world uh, she can be who she is. Well, Vic and Sam share secrets, which leads to incidents which have to be read to be believed. One is a bank robbery and the other is going out to a drag queen show. And it's here that Sam meets Fella Fitzgerald. When he's not on stage, what does Peter do? And why is he so protective towards Sam? That's right. Well, I think Peter, or Fella Fitzgerald, sees a lot of himself in Sam. Peter had uh, quite a conservative upbringing that his family 
force Peter to engage in conversion therapy and left home at an early age, ultimately found family and acceptance in the drag community. And I think immediately Peter recognizes himself in Sam and understands that it's going to require a kind of relentless uh, smothering of love and support to help this person uh, towards a more hopeful place. Um, and, and that informs, uh, you know, Peter's, Peter's behaviour throughout Honeybee. Sam is building a friendship base for the first time. And then there's Aggie. Tell us a bit about Aggie. Well, Aggie is one of my favourite characters. Um, you know, she, uh, she's a teenager. She lives down the road from Vic. Uh, she encounters Sam on the street and almost immediately sweeps Sam up in, in her world, just, just almost declares there and then that they're going to be best friends. Aggie is vivacious and charismatic. Uh, she's very wise. Um, she's very opinionated. And she is a geek. She's a complete nerd. Um, but she owns it. She loves it. She's unabashed. And, uh, you know, she's just whip smart and, and really very witty. Uh, so I have a lot of admiration for her. This is a quote from the book. Nobody in this house can cook to save themselves. We're like a primitive tribe. We all just huddle around the toaster and poke it with a stick. Now, this is Aggie talking about her family. But in contrast, Sam is a really capable chef and when I think about chefing you know they all know how to cook but they're all a bit different you know, there's the Gordon Ramsay who's you know aggressive and there's Nigella Lawson who's got that sexuality but Sam's revered cook is Julia Child now how did you come across the philosophy of Julia Child well it's interesting because Sam comes from quite a neglected background. She's raised by a single parent uh, who is quite volatile, very inconsistent, uh, and often leaves Sam alone, isolated for great periods of time. And so Sam lacks nourishment in a lot of areas in her life, both emotionally, but also the simple fact that the cupboards are bare. Mm. And she stumbles across Julia Child on YouTube. It has a profound impact for a couple of reasons. One is that Sam is often hungry and lacking nourishment. There's something very attractive about seeing food. But mostly it's the fact that Julia Child is so present. She's, such, she's like a giddy old aunt. It's like she speaks straight to you and it's a very intimate discussion that she has with the viewer. And so for Sam, it's almost as though Julia Child becomes a guardian for her. And in fact, the obsession gets so great that they that Sam feels as though they're having discussions, you know, that they have a relationship. Um, and so Julia Child becomes a, a kind of grandmotherly influence in Sam's life. She, she thinks about her in moments where she requires comfort and counsel. But the other thing that happens is that almost by osmosis, Sam learns how to cook. It's also how Sam demonstrates her love for other people. You know, it's difficult for Sam to express herself. And so the way that she communicates to the other characters in this story uh, is through food and through cooking. One of the Julia Child quotes is, one of the secrets of cooking is to learn to correct something if you can and bear with it if you cannot. 
And this is sort of something that Sam does take to heart. Now, in Jasper Jones, there were two tangents that readers really enjoyed and wanted repeated in the film and the theatre. That was the cricket match and the superhero chat. I think there are two tangents in this book of Honeybee too that Craig's Sylvie's given us. It's the philosophy of cooking and Dungeons and Dragons. Now, Craig, are you a player of Dungeons and Dragons? I must admit I haven't played a match, but I've spectated uh, more than a few now. You know, it's fascinating to me. Uh, I love the philosophy that underpins it. And for somebody like Aggie, uh, I think she speaks to why she loves Dungeons and Dragons so much with a great a great deal of forethought and, and articulation. So Sam has his cooking ability. Sam is an experienced thief and learns to fix motorbikes. All is going well until Vic is arrested and Sam is returned to his mother and boyfriend Steve. How does this affect Sam's freedom to be seen as a female? Well, uh, it, it puts Sam under a great deal of pressure. There's no question about that. However, at that point, I think Sam concedes that it's a low point for Sam at that moment. And she almost resists further expressions of her gender identity simply because it causes her so much anguish. And this is quite common. And so once Sam goes back there at the midpoint of the book, she actually leans into masculinity. She denies herself or her true gender identity and tries to almost role play masculinity um, in order to, 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 to be the person that that world expects of her. And, you know, it, 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 it doesn't work. Steve and his mates are borderline criminals. The, Steve's brother's in a bikey gang and he's got a mate dealing drugs and selling to Sam. And Sam becomes an accomplice to it all and finally finds himself back on Clayton Overhang. Now, I'm going to get uh, Craig to read from page 266. This is a really heart-rendering bit. I lay down on my bed and stared at the ceiling. I felt hopeless. I felt so much dread and anxiety that it was hard to breathe. I hated myself. I felt bad about kicking the taxi driver. I wasn't a good person. I stole things. I betrayed people who were nice to me. I was a burden to my mum. I'd been born wrong and I couldn't be fixed. I was a bad person, born in the wrong body and nothing would ever get better. It didn't matter what I did. I had nothing to look forward to. Every day would be harder and harder. And I would suffer more and more as my body changed. The thought of it made me more afraid and panicked and I rolled onto my side and curled into a ball. I was alone in the dark. And I thought about Vic. I thought about how he wanted to be at peace, how he didn't want to ache anymore. He wanted to close his eyes and go to sleep and never wake up. And it's what I wanted too. I wanted to go with Vic and I knew how I could do it. Wow, that's sad. But there is a little light and that might be Diane. How does she fit in? So Diane is a counsellor who comes into Sam's life a little later in the story. I think what Diane and what Peter and what Aggie and what Vic offer Sam outside of support and unconditional love is perspective. 
But what Diane offers Sam, probably more than anybody else, is an opportunity to see herself as she truly is. I think it's the goal of any author to to challenge preconceptions. There's there's no question about that. I have a few goals with Honeybee. You know, I, have, I have a few aspirations for this piece. First and foremost, I stridently believe that visibility and diversity are critical in our cultural landscape. And if trans and gender diverse people, particularly younger readers, can pick up Honeybee and see themselves represented and visible and respected uh, and understood and encouraged and galvanized, I think that would be a really meaningful and rewarding outcome. Beyond that, it's my hope that a broader readership through Honeybee can be offered an emotional context through which they can better understand the emotional complexities and the difficulties and the challenges faced by trans and gender diverse people uh, in Australia, particularly younger people. And by virtue of that, through that alchemy of empathy, uh, we might better understand each other and hopefully promote broader allyship and to hopefully make some spaces safer in this country for members of those communities. Well, that's a mouthful. It's a big hope, but it's hope it's achieved. So after 11 years on from Jasper Jones, you once again so ably get into the narrative head of a teenage boy. Is there a little Peter Pan in you, Craig Sylvie? Uh, I mean, you know, I'm uh, at, at, at once puerile and immature. I can't help that. Uh, you know, it doesn't take me too long to, to dip into these uh, juvenile conversations. That's, that's, no, that's no task for me. But I think the truth is that, that our adolescent years, our teenage years, are often periods of great transition and change um, and upheaval. And I think they're fascinating to me for, for that reason. They're very definitive. We're working out who we are and why and where we fit into the world. And so it's an opportunity to, to present a new perspective in, in a broader social sense. So it's a fascinating line for, for a broader cultural inquiry. But beyond that, I think it's, it's interesting to, to capture those dramatic elements of our life because everything's happening for the first time. Everything feels amplified. Uh, and so it leads itself to, to interesting reading, I think. Um, and those years are, are so definitive. You know, we're, we're asking questions and seeking answers that go on to, to influence the many, many years to, to come into our adult years. Uh, and so it's, it's a really interesting period of our lives to try to capture. Well, I think you've even captured that in the name Honeybee. We don't find out till the very end why that term of endearment is so profound in this book. So the unusual characters, the interesting situations and the building of friendships make Honeybee another moving, occasionally devastating read by Craig Sylvie. Thank you very much, Craig. Thanks so much, Jan. I really appreciate it. And now it's David's turn. What is to be done is a catch cry often heard when we look for solutions to the various ailments we witness in society. But it is also the title of Barry Jones's latest work, What Is To Be Done. So, Barry, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you very much for inviting me, David. When Sleepers Wake came out in 1982, 
It addressed the impact of technological change. But what is to be done tackles, amongst other things, the impact of that technology, the political crises we seem to be facing, and most importantly of all, climate change. So is society ready and capable of facing the whirlwind of issues you present to us? Well, the democratic process is under almost unparalleled threat. One of the consequences of what I was writing about in Sleepers Wake back in 1982, I'd worked on the assumption that uh, having access to unlimited data, that would make people far more sophisticated, far more intelligent, far more critical when they're reaching conclusions or judgments about things. I thought that would make the whole level of political debate, of cultural debate, at a new level of sophistication. Well, neither of those things happened. The negative side of the digital revolution was it had the effect, because everybody had access to unlimited information, it wasn't filtered or curated or edited in such a way that said, look, here's a sensible way to understand, well, we say how disease works. Here's a sensible way to understand how the climate changes. The, the democratization, in inverted commas, that's been caused by the digital revolution has meant that people could say, well, I don't care what your qualifications are, I take a different view. And my view is just as significant as yours. And just because you're wearing a white coat and you've got a, a highly, you've got a PhD in chemistry, doesn't mean you can tell me the way in which the atmosphere is changing. I'm forming my own view, and that's the democratic way. That's a threat to the whole concept of democracy being based on what we might call loosely uh, enlightenment principles. I, I was going to throw in the line that I, I used facetiously before Trump was elected, that democracy is too precious a thing to be left in the hands of the people. Well, the, the situation is really, uh, you had a contest in the United States between two models, liberal democracy against authoritarian democracy. That means that that any kind of sense of dissent is, is, is not, not to be questioned. Now, there's a thing about reading this book, Barry. I wasn't sure if I should look at your findings with optimism or concern. Society seems to be full of these contradictions. So one case in point, disturbingly, although we have the highest proportion of graduates in our history, we have opted for banal timidity and political disengagement. And that contradiction is with technology as well. We've got the capacity to go to the moon with a mobile phone, so to speak, but we're using it for social media. So how should we take on the findings that you present to us? What I found particularly shocking is the fact that the way in which the political system operates at the moment is that you have the two major parties, 
And what those two parties have in common is that they are, in a sense, closed corporations. They're very inward-looking, they're very secretive, and the result is that parties on the whole aren't terribly worried about engaging with the community and getting people to turn up. The other thing is public funding. That means that because they get $2.62 for every vote cast in the previous election, you know, they're, they're pretty well healed. That armour plates the existing political parties. And that means it's almost impossible for the community outside to engage and change the culture of those parties. And if you take, for example, climate change, if you look at the people who, from their lived experience, have got a profound knowledge of climate change. I mean, if you take gardeners, farmers, bushwalkers, beekeepers, people who take a serious interest in science generally, you've got millions of people with direct knowledge. And yet the number of reasonably active members in all the political parties combined would be about 30,000. That means you've got 99.8% of the voters don't want to get involved and they leave it to the 30,000. Another concern you raise is homo economicus. I mean, finance seems to have overtaken our humanity. Absolutely. But linked to that, of course, is the concept of short-termism. After the, uh, the last federal election, the first item on the agenda when the cabinet met would have been, how do we win in 2022? The, the concept of saying, well, how do we tackle a really serious problem to head off the prospect of climate change became, becoming irresistible and taking strong action, say, by 2030? See, the hardheads in the party say, well, there'll be four elections between now and 2030. Why don't we postpone it till then? And when you're talking about 2050, the second half of this uh, century, that seems unimaginably remote. You also then challenge the notion of Australian exceptionalism, the myth on which we think we're founded, our moral bankruptcy when it comes to refugees. What state is Australia in at the moment? I use the term Australian exceptionalism in inverted commas um, in a sort of slightly ironic way. But nevertheless, if you look at our history, you can see that there are some really deplorable things um, uh, in our recent political history that we simply don't talk about. I mean, the treatment of refugees, I think, has been extraordinarily cruel. And what's driving it is politics. And worst of all is the recognition that it's politically popular. Now, my point has always been that if you're really going to take on a serious argument, you've got to be prepared to argue it through in detail and keep on at it, whether it's climate change or whether it's a refugee issue. You might be prepared to take a few hits at the beginning, but in the end, if you're consistent, if you're courageous, and if you seem to be principled, you can win people over, but you've got to be able to level with them 
and say, in effect, I'm going to tell you things you don't want to hear. This is not going to be a popular eye, but nevertheless, let me tell you why I'm doing it. Lastly, Barry, you do provide suggestions about what needs to be done and even provide your own version of a Gettysburg address. And there are too many suggestions to go through, but I keep coming back to this notion of contradiction. We know what needs to be done. We have the technology to do it. But do we actually have the will and the right moral focus to succeed? Are we, in fact, listening? Look, we've got to think of the principle of Archimedes' lever. Give me a lever long enough and I will move the world. It would require people to be prepared to give up something, to give up time, to give up money, to give up energy. And if we had even half a million people who are prepared to devote themselves and say, I'm going to give time and resource and commitment to changing the political culture and putting pressure on the major political parties to change, and if they don't change, to seize an initiative to create a new kind of political structure. The only way you can do it is by political involvement and direct face-to-face political involvement. The point is, you can get a million people to press the send button on their computer. And they say, well, I made a big contribution to this issue. I I signed an online petition. Wasn't that terrific? Well, it's not enough. They've got to be directly involved. They've got to actually engage with neighbours. They've got to talk to people in their street. They've got to talk to people who they're working with. That's the only way you can do it. There has to be that personal involvement. It cannot just be a matter of saying, well, I did something online. Barry, thank you. I mean, you've just provided us with one answer to the question you have posed. But thank you very much for talking with me again. The book is What Is To Be Done? The author, Barry Jones. And it's a scribe publication. So thank you once again, Barry. Thank you, David. So we're all going on now. Summer holiday. Keep up the music lessons, Jan. Keep up the singing lessons. Published or not, we'll be back January 14th, 2021. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.